Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Kyle Myers about their new book, Raising Them, Our Adventure in Gender Creative Parenting. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I wonder if we could start by having you tell us about yourself. Sure. My name is Kyle Myers. I have a PhD in sociology and a background in gender studies as well. I am a parent to a radical little four and a half year old named Zoomer. I am a gender queer woman. I use they, them, and she, her pronouns. I I'm married to a really cool guy named Brent, who is Australian, Um, and I am a public sociologist. I'm an advocate for gender creative parenting and really trying to educate people to celebrate gender diversity and lean into it and um, create a more equitable world for kids. That's a wonderful introduction. Thank you for telling us that. Normally, I ask the next question of what led you to write this book, but I wonder if we could back up uh, even before the book and you could tell us about your um, experience in learning about gender and what led you to that field of study and where you studied. Sure. So I, I, for being someone who, you know, has a degree in gender studies and, you know, is kind of a thought leader around, you know, revolutionizing childhood gender socialization, I think people are often surprised to learn that I grew up in really conservative Mormon um, culture. And so I grew up Mormon. I grew up in small towns, in white towns, in um, the Mountain West. And I grew up understanding gender as completely binary and completely non-negotiable and intrinsically linked, you know, to sex and gender and and determined by God. And I knew no one who was bending gender. I knew no one who was out, you know, as queer. And so it was just completely off of my radar for a really long time in my childhood and adolescence and in my early adulthood I like I left the church and I left Utah and I traveled to Europe and I was a nanny there and I really like you could say the wool was pulled off of my eyes and I really started to understand not even just gender as diverse, just like the human experience as diverse. And it really exposed how little I knew about everything. And I really felt motivated to go to college and try to learn more. I felt embarrassed by how little I felt I knew about the world and different perspectives outside of the the culture that I was raised in. And so I started going to college, not really knowing what I wanted to study. But when I was an undergrad, it was when um, same-sex marriage, I mean, this was like 2004 through 2008. You know, I say same-sex marriage was like this really hot political topic. And unfortunately, in 2020, it is still, right? You know, like it, it, and so 
I remember, I remember feeling like I could not understand why my fellow students in my college in Utah were so homophobic. And we, it was just this like non-starter of having conversations in the classroom about same-sex marriage and the legality of it. And I just felt like I needed to get out of Utah. And so I went to California and that is where I started taking my first classes in like gender studies and women's studies and being educated by feminist um, professors and got totally bit by the bug of studying uh, social justice. And so I think that that was kind of like the, the start of my path to become a sociologist, you know, of like, you can study this, you can study social justice, you can get paid, you know, to like, think about these issues and try to theorize and apply ways to make the world more equitable, you know, for people. And, and that was like the, you know, the rest is history, really, when it comes to just getting my bachelor's degree in gender studies and knowing I wanted to keep going and feeling like sociology was going to be the best fit for me and applying to graduate programs and then, you know, doing the master's degree and PhD in sociology. That was like, um, yeah, really my whole, you know, it's just been my whole adult life now. And so it was this interest, I think, that led you to your interest in gender creative parenting. Is that what sparked the idea for the book? Yeah, I got exposed to, you know, the idea of gender creative parenting while I was an undergrad. So, you know, taking, you know, intro to feminist theory classes and advanced feminist theory classes and like learning about um, these waves of feminism and learning about like LGBTQ history, while also meeting people who were intersex and non-binary and transgender and queer, like it all just started clicking into place, you know, that like, oh, reality is very, very different than I was raised to believe about gender. And so I was exposed to some news stories about two kids. There was Sasha in the UK and Storm in Canada. And this was like 2011, 2012, that these news stories were written about them. And they were both not assigned genders when they were born. And the news, there was a total media frenzy around it. But I remember reading those stories when I was an undergraduate in my like early 20s, early mid 20s, and thinking, because of my new understanding of gender, right? Is it being self-determined and being along a spectrum and not a binary? It made so much sense to me. And I was like, that's awesome. I feel like if I ever become a parent, that is what I would want to do. I would want to not assign a gender to my kid because I don't believe that it's up to me to assign. I think it is up to my child to self-determine and tell me who they are instead of the other way around. And I was starting to become familiar with they, them pronouns, you know, and I was like, I could use they, them pronouns for my kid instead of gendered pronouns. And I could just try to teach my child about gender, how I now understand it, um, you know, as a spectrum, you know, and, and really complex and wonderful. And so that was, I got bit by that bug and like really put it away. Like I wasn't a parent yet. I wasn't partnering. It was the furthest thing from my mind, but I tucked that idea away. And then 
when I went into graduate school and I was studying population level health and just day in and day out, I was reading these academic papers about gendered health outcomes or, I mean, just everything that I was reading about as a sociology graduate student, I could link directly back to gender inequities and gender socialization of like, you know, why there were different health outcomes, why there were different political outcomes, why there were different economic outcomes. And it just all fell into place. And it was just like, I cannot see myself doing parenting the way it's traditionally done. You know, I just, I don't want this for my kid. I don't want the same thing that happened to me. I don't want my kid to be drenched in gender stereotypes. I don't want them to be shepherded down a binary path. And and so it just was like this non-negotiable thing, honestly, of like, if I have a kid, I will do gender creative parenting and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And so when I met my partner and we started talking about having a family, you know, I was like, this is how I see myself being a parent. And he was open to it, you know, and was like, okay, you kind of need to explain some stuff to me. And you, you know, clearly have thought about this a lot more than me, but I understand it and was on board. So that was a really, I mean, fortunate for me, like that was a, you know, a smooth transition into parenthood and like having this parenting philosophy. And the book is a memoir. It's not in the parenting handbook genre. It's not a how-to, there's no tips. Um, it's really your experience and it's written as a memoir and it starts before you you do meet your partner and it starts while you're in school and, and you're still thinking about all these things. And then it seems from the book like meeting him was more serendipity. You weren't really thinking you were at a place where you wanted to think about marriage or child raising that you were developing your ideas about, well, one day, if I do, it would be like this, but it wasn't um, on your radar. Like, oh, I'm getting to the place where I think these are the things I want to do. No, no. Like, I think I was at this place. I, uh, when I met Brent, I must've been like 26 and I, that was getting married and having a baby. I mean, that was the furthest thing <laughs> from my mind. Um, yeah. And I did it. I wasn't planning on it. And, but we met and we fell in love and um, he was in Australia, right? And I was in Utah. And so marriage made sense because of immigration. And then, and he's six years older than me. And we'll, we'll talk about like academia, I think in this, but the academic timeline, I think really comes into play for a lot of people in deciding if they're going to get pregnant, when they're going to get pregnant, right? And like, it, it all coordinates with, okay, but like the job market and then like, you know, tenure track. And, and so that was totally happening to me too. Like is having a baby right as I was finishing graduate school seemed like the most bonkers idea. And yet I did it, you know? So, um, no, nothing went as I thought it would go. If you were to ask like the Kyle, you know, six months before meeting Brent. (laughs) And I actually, when I do the podcast, I tape notes up all over the microphone and I actually have page 51 decisions about how a serious relationship would affect school, career, and the tenure track. (laughs) Page 51 is you're, you're laying out all of these concerns that about, well, if I got pregnant at this point, how would it affect finishing school? But if I got pregnant at that point, how would it affect interviewing for professor jobs? But if Mm -hmm. I got pregnant at that point, how would it affect the tenure clock? Mm-hmm. 
Do you want to mm-hmm. talk about what, what those very real considerations are for um, planning parenthood and planning an academic career? Yeah, I, I I remember picking up on cues that it was discouraged, you, you know, like it was like, how dare you even consider, how dare any of you female graduate students even consider getting pregnant during your funded time here, right? Like I like, and even though it wasn't explicit, and even though I was in a sociology department, right, where people are studying the motherhood penalty, I, it was there, it was in the air, you know, of like, of, I could feel it. I could feel like, do we want to take this, you know, student on who has young kids, you know, and it was definitely, um, discriminated against females rather than males, right? Like there were so many men in our, my graduates program who had kids, you know, and I just don't remember them ever being questioned about it as much, nearly as much as, as the women. Um, but that was in the air for sure. And we also make no dollars, right? Like a graduate student stipend is so small. It was just like, it's so hard to imagine being able to even like raise a family on the, the stipend that we get as graduate students. And with the like really bananas schedule, right? It just like, it just seemed so difficult. And I know people do it. And a lot of people think that it's like the best decision ever to do it. Um, but I, I just remember just this sense of like, people won't be stoked about graduate students getting pregnant and having children. Um, and, but I, I had really, really supportive mentors. And so when I met Brent and we got married in 2014 and we got pregnant in 2015 and it was planned. And my plan though was like, okay, I am about to enter my last year of graduate school. I got a graduate research, got like a, um, like a, I got some funding to be able to just work on my dissertation the last year. So I didn't have any more coursework. I didn't have to teach because this, you know, research fund was going to be able to like make it so I didn't have to teach. And so I was like, this might be a good time to have a baby. Mind you, I had never had a baby before and didn't realize actually how like demanding that first year is. And I think it's so silly that I thought that people do it and I'm not discouraging people from doing it, but it's just like, how did I think I was going to write a dissertation while like having a baby at home and being the primary caregiver? Um, But I remember thinking we could do this. We could do this because then by the time that I finish and I'm going on the job market, I won't be pregnant. I won't be nursing. um, There won't be these like visible signs of parenthood on me that someone could use against me either, you know, consciously or unconsciously in deciding if I'm a good candidate for them. And so that was my plan. And then I, we got pregnant and then I actually got approached for a job at the school of medicine when I was eight months pregnant. And they said, we think you are a really good fit for this job that we have in mind because I studied contraception and contraceptive access. And I was like, I'm eight months pregnant. You know, like, this is not the plan. This is not how this is supposed to go. And like, aren't you supposed to be discriminating against me and like wanting nothing to do with me as like a, you know, a a seriously close to new parent, but they were accommodating and, and wonderful, but it also set off a new, like a new trajectory of issues of 
starting a job when I was 11 weeks postpartum and still trying to finish a dissertation and, and balancing the multiple guilts that I had of when I was at home with my baby feeling guilty that I wasn't like the perfect employee that I, an academic that I had trained so hard to be. And when I was at work feeling so guilty that the timing of my debut into parenthood meant that like, I didn't have the flexibility to be at home with Zoomer as much as I wanted. And, and, and so it was just that first year, I just remember feeling I was damned if I did and damned if I didn't. And I just felt guilt no matter where I was. And that was just a really wild experience to, to have as an academic and a parent, you know, both of these paths that I want and just how um, conflicting they were. And, and, th- and that I created that, right? Like in my own mind and in my own, um, yeah, my own ways, my, my own expectations that I had set for myself for both of those paths and that I felt like I wasn't living up to what I wanted to do in, in either of them. And when you got pregnant, you were uh, a teaching fellow, it sounds like, mm-hmm. from the book, that you had classes that you were teaching and that you were trying to actually do your teaching load fairly quickly before you got too pregnant. But in the first trimester, you were incredibly sick. You had right. the kind of morning sickness that doesn't follow a clock. It was 24 yeah. hours a day. And you were throwing up in trash cans on the cross campus as you were trying to get into the class. But you wanted the students to think you were slightly nervous. You preferred they think you have an anxiety disorder rather than they think you were pregnant. That's my read of how you were presenting that help with my mom. And so it seemed from the beginning you were concerned about the vulnerability of what happens when people know that you're pregnant and you're in academia. Is that yeah. fair? Yeah, it is fair. And I also have to say, like, I was my own worst enemy about it because the the I got pregnant in July and I was scheduled to teach, you know, one class in the fall semester and then one class in the spring semester. But my due date was March 20th, you know, and spring semester ends at the end of April. And so it was like, what are we going to do? And so I had told my advisor who was, is incredible and had been like an incredible mentor to me and is a, a wonderful friend to me now. Um, I told her I was pregnant, you know, early, right? I wasn't going to wait until I was, you know, into my second trimester. I was like, I have got to tell the people that I need to tell professionally about this. And so I told Claudia that I was pregnant and she was like, okay, like that's, that's great. Let's figure this out. And you need to talk to the chair and you need to talk to the grad, you know, the graduate student advisor and like, let's, let's figure this out. And so I emailed them and they were both wonderful, both, you know, they're both women, they're both mothers and they were so kind to me about it. And, and I really think I was the first from, from what I can tell, at least like I was the first, um, woman graduate student who ha- had been pregnant in, in graduate school in at least some time, like no one, in, no one ahead of me had been pregnant. No one behind me in, you know, in cohorts was pregnant. And so there was no family leave policy for graduate students. Like they wrote it up when I became pregnant. And it is, that was really cool to be able to kind of 
be the reason why there's a family leave policy now for graduate students at the sociology department at the University of Utah. And they they kind of left it up to me. They're like, what do you want to do? Do you want to try to teach both of your classes in the fall? Do you want to try to teach your spring class online? Do you want to teach your spring class in person? And then your TA can step in, you know, when you know, when you have the baby to like kind of cover for that last month. They were they were kind to me. And I was just like, I will teach both classes in the in the fall. And so they let me do that. They made all of these changes and and no one made me feel guilty about it. And I think that that right like so it's it's almost like I had built it up in my head um but but based off of like everything I knew about the experience of like being a working mom, you know, or woman in America and how, you know, discriminated people can be and how actually few family leave policies are in place, you know? So, so I had definitely been my like own worst fear there. And in reality, it ended up being really wonderful of like with the accommodations that they made for me. But yeah, I was, I was, I had morning sickness, like in the morning and in the afternoon and in the evening, not like your Kate Middleton, Amy Schumer, you know, like, like hyperemesis where you're hospitalized and can't keep anything down. But that was a brutal, that was a brutal time. And especially with pregnancy, I couldn't believe how like tired I was and how unintelligent I was. I mean, I just was like, this is wild. Like I feel so not smart and my job is to be smart. (laughs) So it was, it was really wild. You were also spread pretty thin during that time period. If I'm reading your memoir correctly, I mean, you're newly married. Um, and you have this very vivid scene where he's going to come stay with you before y'all decide to get married and you want to get your apartment looking so great that you even clean the ceiling. And you're like, I have such strong feelings for him. I have ceiling feelings. I'm like, I have had strong feelings for people. It's never even occurred to me to think if I should be cleaning the ceiling before any guests come over. Um, that you were really, I mean, you were really having strong feelings that surprised you. As we covered a few minutes ago, you weren't really in a space where you thought you were going to um, have a life partner. You know, mm-hmm. that would be something for the future. So this is hitting you sort of like a ton of bricks. And mm-hmm. then you all, it's a fairly quick relationship. It's like five right, or six, six months. Yeah. Yeah. Six months of dating and, and then you're married. And at the point that you're pregnant, you've now known each other a year. Right. Right. A little over a year. Yeah. And you're still finishing grad school. You're trying to plan a career. He's trying to launch a career here in America. It's not his home country. The healthcare system alone is mind boggling. Mm -hmm. If you come from a country that has a one that works well. (laughs) And, um, you know, he also has this sort of outsider thing. I mean, there's kind of, for me, is a sense when I travel, like, oh, if I speak the language, I'll just sort of figure it out. But the mm-hmm. truth is that there's culture shock. Um, and Definitely. So you have so much going on on every level of your life. And you do not have a peer in your program who's pregnant. You don't have your girlfriend there at school that you can be like, you know, comparing notes or encouraging each other along. And you've decided to do gender creative parenting, which is on you to educate your entire social circle. Right. Or how to do. So you are stretched pretty thin. And to help educate the social circle about what gender creative parenting is going to be, because 
you have a sense that it's going to start the minute people know that you're pregnant. They're going to start with ideas and they're going to start pre-planning what the child's gender will mean, both in gifts they buy, in interactions they're looking forward to, in the whole spectrum. And so you start a blog. Right. Right. You want to talk about that? Yeah. So I had been teaching one of the courses that I taught at the University of Utah as a graduate student was sociology of gender and sexuality. And I had huge classes. I I think one one semester I had a class of 112 students in my gender and sexuality class as a as a graduate student, right? Who's like also taking my own courses and working on whether it was my master's thesis or my or my dissertation. Um, but I loved teaching that class and I taught it a lot while I was a graduate student. And so I had learned how to take you know, these, these ideas and theories and the history, you know, of, of, of gender and sexuality and, and serve it up in like an accessible way, right? Like I was an educator. My job was to teach people about how to understand gender and sexuality in the same way that I did as a sociologist. And so I felt like I, I have the skills to be able to like make this easier on my family, you know, by like treating them kind of like students, you know, I mean, there's a different power dynamic or feelings there, right? And like, you don't want to disappoint your parents. But I started a blog to try to, uh, it's called RaisingZoomer.com. And my husband is a graphic designer. And so like, I could write the content, and then he could kind of design it. And so I would write these little essays about like, here's here's what like gender neutral pronouns are and gender neutral language and like why we think that that's important. And and this is why we're not going to be disclosing, you know, what Zoomer's genitals are, um, you know, because of bias and unconscious bias and kind of these stereotypical scripts that tend to be put on to children. And also because just because we know what Zoomer's genitals are doesn't mean we're going to know what their gender is and, and just all of these different, you know, this is how we're going to navigate formal documents like birth certificates and passports, and just trying to put it out there so that our family and friends and coworkers could read this right at their own pace and with all these little, you know, hyperlinks in it that, you know, if they needed to learn more then this is where you go. And it, so I just felt like I was creating an online class in a way for my for the people in my circle who needed to understand this better. Um, so we did. We, we made that and then kind of sent it out to our family and friends. It went along with our birth announcement when Zoomer was born. Um, and it helped. It really, really helped people grasp it without us having to have 100 separate in-person conversations, right? And it kind of helped put a buffer of that like emotional, you know, part or like conflict that can even come up when you're talking about gender and sexuality or parenting. And so that was this, that just is what I wanted to do. And we did it and it seemed helpful or, you know, like it was just this thing that could exist that Zoomers daycare teachers could look at, you know, the, the parents of the, you know, Zoomers little classmates and the, at the preschool could look at. Um, so that was what the, that was the purpose of the blog was to educate people about gender creative parenting and what it was and why we felt it was important to do. If you had to summarize what gender creative parenting is, what would you say? So gender creative parenting to me means 
giving a child gender freedom and kind of how that's applied is by not assigning a gender to them at birth using they, them, their pronouns or all of the pronouns um, for them while they're growing up until they can identify and tell you what pronouns they want to use and not disclosing their anatomy to people who don't need to know so that those people can't stereotype them and really just teaching them about gender as a spectrum and helping them understand that gender is so much more than boy and girl. There's intersex, non-binary, transgender, cisgender, queer, demi, demi gender. So just right, just trying to from the beginning when their little brains are being wired to think about gender to disrupt that binary pathway from solidifying because that's not actually reality. And so that that was really the goal of like, let's make a soft landing for you to be whoever you're going to be and and also teach you about how gender actually looks in the world. And it's not binary. You use a term in the book, anti-gender, and it's mm. A-N-T-E gender, not A-N-T-I gender. Can you explain for listeners what anti-gender is. Yeah. And, and the term anti-gender, like that concept was introduced to me by my friend, Ari Dennis, who also does gender creative parenting. And they had, they had kind of introduced me to this concept of anti-gender, meaning like similar to like an anti-room, which is kind of like, you know, this entryway that you step into before you go into the room. And, and so anti-gender is kind of this space before being able to actually cognitively understand gender and and identify with gender or you know want to be able to express yourself in your gender so little kids um they just don't really have the cognitive ability to understand gender how how adolescents and adults do um but we teach them really young and also we tend to to assume, I mean, like kind of as a culture, assume that like, well, gender is just innate. You know, you're born with gender based on your anatomy and and gender creative parenting and this concept of anti-gender is like, no, like kids actually can't comprehend, a, a, a six-month-old can't comprehend gender, right? Like, and so I think this anti-gender space is really just um, acknowledging that and like, in this first couple of years, we can we can shield them from learning about gender in a stereotypical way, in a binary way, in an oppressive way, um, and and really try to to just just model really equitable, um, egalitarian, diverse, um, celebratory models of of gender. And that's one of the points that you make in the book um, that you fully expect Zoomer to announce a gender to you at some point or to say they don't want a gender, but to let you know preferred pronouns Mm -hmm. and that that's Zoomer's lead to take. Um, So it's not a book that's trying to eliminate gender. It's a book that's trying to hold space while children get to a place where they understand themselves well enough to claim their own gender and pronouns. And the overall takeaway it seems is that then these will be children who understand what it is to be inclusive and to respect diversity because they experienced it during such formative years. Is that, is that right? 
Yes, that's an excellent <laughs> summary. Yeah, I think absolutely that is the goal. And Zoomer um, has like told us what pronouns, you know, and, and labels, you, you know, work. But I think what's and, you know, feel best. And I think what's so wild and rewarding about gender creative parenting is seeing it work. And now like Zoomer has this really expansive vocabulary and like by no means I do not want people to think like, and we have raised this like this kid who has no idea what the gender binary is and never says anything stereotypical because that's not true. We didn't raise Zoomer in a gender creative vacuum, right? Like they go to preschool and they watch TV and they are exposed to the marketing, you know, of toy catalogs and everything. So, and like they're, they're picking up on gender, right? Like from the, the models in their life, their teachers, their friends, their parents, the characters, all the things. Um, but what is so beautiful is Zoomer has this really expansive vocabulary. Like, they'll say like, I don't know if that person is like a boy or a girl or non-binary. So I'll use they, them until I, until they tell me what pronouns, right? right? And like what four and a half year old, like I certainly wasn't saying that. I didn't know what, you know, I didn't know how to understand pronouns until I was like in my late teens, early twenties. And, you know, it was just like, wasn't on our radar. And so just seeing them be so inclusive and hold so many counter stereotypes, like Zoomer believes that that doctors are all women because every <laughs> healthcare provider they've ever seen is a woman, you know? And it's just like, yeah, you go on thinking, you know, like think on thinking that, um, but just little, you know, Steph little, is only for females. <laughs> little, little things, you know I mean? They just, we've just tried to narrate the world and teach them a perspective about sex and gender and sexuality that um, isn't binary. And so that's how they understand the world now. It's really, wonderful to see. One of the things I was, one of the scenes that really resonated with me in the book was you, you had a birth plan and you had a doula and a midwife and babies do what babies do. So that all went out the window when Zoomer was breached and wasn't having any of the efforts to <laughs> get Zoomer to move around in another position. Zoomer was like, nope, this is how I crouch inside mama. Yeah. And so now you're going to have to have a hospital birth and your doula and your midwife both prepped you in a lot of ways. They explained to you what the C-section would be like and they sort of role modeled it for you. So, But there were things that you didn't foresee, like that the bassinet would have either a pink or blue mm-hmm. card in it for the baby and that there were gendered beanies for the baby's heads mm-hmm. and that it really... It, it really was what you had an instinct about. Like people will start gendering my baby from the very beginning, unless I deliberately and consciously and clearly continue to say no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like I wrote, I, I was devastated that Zoomer was breach and that, weeks before my due date, right? Like the whole birth plan went out the window and I was referred, you know, to the university hospital to have an ECV procedure where they try to turn the baby, you know, and, and get them head down and that didn't work. And so then it was just like, Hey, well, you have a decision to make. You can try to have like a vaginal breach birth, or you can schedule a C-section. And so I knew like, okay, well, like, 
no matter what, I'm having this baby in the hospital and a C-section sounded good to me. And, um, so I, I just remember being really sad and like, and once again, I mean, kind of similarly to, um, like when I got pregnant in graduate school and like, like I had so many hypothetical anxieties, right? Like I would dream up these like, well, this is going to happen and like, this is going to happen and this is how it's going to go bad. Like, I think it's so easy, right. To get caught up in like worst case scenarios. And so I had those same things of like, oh gosh, like there's going to be some like pediatrician or medical assistant who thinks we're like weird and they're not going to provide us with like high quality care, you know, which happens to queer people all the time. And so, so I, I remember just being like, oh gosh, this is, this is not exciting for me. And there is a, there was a, a beautiful caveat that happened of like, I had just been like how I mentioned that I got hired when I was eight months pregnant. It was in to the OBGYN department at the school of medicine. So I was going to be research staff in the family planning division of the OBGYN department. And so my boss was the chief of the family planning division, of course, was like, you know, very close with um, the doctor who I had been referred to. And so I was able, like I had kind of told, you know, like my, my future boss was advocating for me behind the scenes of like, she's one of us, like take really good care of her. And I think that that helped to have that kind of like personal soft referral. And then when I, but he was also going to be like my big boss, like the person who did my C-section is the chief of like OB is the, um, the chair of the OBGYN department, you know? So it's just like, it's not every day that like you're, you're, big wig boss, you know, is like seeing you naked on a operating table. But I, I sent him an email the night before the C-section. I mean, it's like, that's when I finally got the nerve up, you know, like to tell him like, I'm doing gender creative parenting and like, I need your support with this, you know, to be able to like salvage some control in my birth experience. And so I sent him an email And when I got to the hospital the next day, um, I had no idea, like, did he receive it? Like he hadn't replied, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, did he receive it? Does he think we are bonkers? Like, is this going to affect our working relationship? You know, when I start in three months and, and he, he came in to the, the room, you know, where I was waiting for the OR, you know, to be available for me. And he said, I got your email and we will be discreet about baby's bottom bits, you know? And I was like, oh my gosh, thank you. You know? And, and, and I was like, thank you for like being so cool about this, you know? And he said, oh, I have gotten some wild requests from parents before. This is not, this is nothing, you know? And I was just like, oh, okay, great. You know? So he took it upon himself to talk to the, the staff, like, like the, the team who was going to be taking care of me. And so, when I, the only, the only person that I had to really inform was the the nurse, the, the charge nurse who was taking care of me. She hadn't gotten the memo yet. Um, my doctor hadn't told her, um, because I had arrived at the hospital before he did. And so I had talked to her, you know, like, this is what we're doing because, you know, they're saying, do you know what you're having? You know? And I was like, well, we're going to be surprised, but that means something different than what you might mean, what you might think it mean. Like you might think that I believe I'm going to find out the gender of my kid in that operating room, I think I'm going to find out the gender of my kid when they're about four years old, you know? And so I talked to her about gender creative parenting and, and she was so curiously open 
to, to learning about it. You know, I was like, like there's intersex kids and there's, you know, there's trans parents and like, this is the thing. And she was like, you're right. Like, I don't know what we would do for a baby who was born, who was intersex and like the parents didn't want a blue or a pink card, you know? And so it was just like, it was good to see these thoughts firing up. But my doctor had told like the anesthesiologist, the pediatric team, the nurses who were in the OR. So when I went into the OR by myself, um, cause Brent couldn't come in until a little bit later, the anesthesiologist was like, as he's giving me a spinal, you know, to make me numb, he was like, I hear that we're, I hear we're welcoming a free spirit into the world today, you know, and just, I just could not have asked for a more like lovingly receptive birth care team, you know, and I just kind of feel like, well, shame on me for thinking that I wouldn't have gotten this. And that's why I wanted to have like a home birth so desperately. And I wanted a midwife so desperately. Um, when in all reality, this like big, big team, because I'm having a C-section, they were kind, you know, and accepting and leaning into it and not like ignoring it. But we're actually like, let's let's talk about this a little bit. I'm intrigued. And I feel incredibly privileged and grateful for that experience to have had that be like this litmus test, you know, of like, this is going to be okay. Like this huge decision, this scary decision that I have decided to take on as a parent is going to be okay. And the book takes us through that journey that it really is okay. Zoomer seems like a really happy child and Zoomer has friends and your family has um, embraced how you are planning parenting and how you're executing the parenting and then you have um, your website. And then you, in order to create community of others who are like-minded in, in figuring out what gender creative parenting would be, you started a Facebook group and an Instagram account. So I started an Instagram account and there was already a Facebook group about for, for people who were raising babies, you know, they, them pronouns from the start that I didn't find until Zoomer was over a at least a year old, maybe even older. Um, I was searching for community mainly through Instagram hashtags of just like, surely there's more people out there like me, but I don't know. We don't have a shared language, you know, like what are we calling this? Like I was calling it gender creative parenting, but other people call it gender open parenting or gender autonomous parenting. And so I, you, right, like I didn't know that until I found them and was like, oh, you're calling it gender open parenting. Okay. <laughs> you know? But, but we were just trying to find each other and like what would happen would be these beautiful like internet um, referrals almost of like, I'd find someone and they'd start following, you know, me and they'd go, you know, I have a friend who's actually in Tokyo, who's doing something like this. Let me, you know, this is their profile. And so there was just this like six degrees of separation and like, you know, community that started just like coming together. And then I'd find one person and they'd introduce me to the three people that they had found. And, and then I could introduce them to the two people that I had found. And so it just kept growing and growing and growing. So I do think that there was a community before I found it, but then over the last few years, the community has grown exponentially, especially because so many of us have taken on a role as public advocates, doing media interviews, writing blogs, writing books, doing podcasts, you know, being educators out in the community. And so then 
it sparks, you know, inspiration in other people. And so I hear all the time of people saying, oh, well, the reason I am doing gender creative parenting is because I read the interview that you did with New York Magazine in 2018, you know, so it's just, it keeps growing because we parents keep talking about it. And so if we circle back for a minute, you said 11 weeks after Mm. you have Zoomer, you start your new job. Your dissertation is still in process at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) how, how has that path worked out and where are you now? Yeah. So I defended my dissertation proposal in February of 2016, and I had Zoomer in March of 2016. So I was like ABD right before um, having, having Zoomer. And my dissertation project was like a primary data collection project. So I was... Um, doing focus groups and surveys in the Salt Lake County jail in Utah. Uh, And I was, I was assessing um, the contraceptive histories and needs of, of women who were incarcerated at the jail. And then additionally, I was also interviewing jail healthcare providers across the country about um, whether they had contraceptive, you know, access programs in their jails, what their beliefs and attitudes were about um, women having, you know, access to contraception while incarcerated. So I, I had a pretty big undertaking of a dissertation of like, actually, like doing this primary data collection and all the analyses on my own. And so I hadn't, I had done some of the, you know, data collection, but I was doing focus groups, you know, when I was, when I had like a four month old baby, like the summer, you know, Zoomer was born. And so I was also, I started work. I remember getting the, like, we want you call from, from the job. And I was like, okay, great. When do you want me to start? And my, my boss was like, like maybe the week of March 20th. And I was like, that is my due date. Like that is not going to happen. And of course, you know, he was like, well, when, when would you want to start? And I was like, I feel like I would, I really want to take at least that like 11 or 12 weeks. And, um, and he's like, okay, you know, and I was like, I'll start, you know, depending on if my kid comes early or late, but like maybe around June 1st. And that was 11 weeks after Zoomer was born. And I had to negotiate for kind of like a staggered start because, I didn't have childcare. Like I had been planning on being at home with Zoomer for that year while finishing my dissertation and, you know, maybe taking advantage of like some babysitters here and there, but I didn't have childcare. And in Salt Lake City, like a lot of other places, like to be able to get into a childcare center, especially with an infant, you have to get on these really long wait lists. And so when I got offered the job, I was like, let me figure out what childcare is going to be. But like, I don't think I'm going to be able to come five days a week if I can't have childcare. So I had I had gone to a daycare center that was close to our house and hugely pregnant. And I was like, hello, I am interested in getting on your list, you know, for this fetus who will be here tomorrow. And, and they were like, okay, we have a wait list of about like nine months. We're thinking that like the next available spot's going to be in November. And I was like, oh my goodness. And that was how it looked everywhere. And so like, how was I going to start this job full time in June and finish my dissertation when there was like no childcare available until November? And so I 
asked one of my friends who was in the sociology program with me, like a couple years behind me, if they could help me, you know, look after Zoomer. And my boss was really great about, I was like, I'm going to come in three days a week and I'll get a babysitter, you know, those three days and I'll be at home you know, working from home, maybe like Tuesdays and Thursdays. And so I had that staggered thing until Zoomer was about five months. So from three to five months, I was in the office a few days a week and at home a couple days a week. And then we finally got into the daycare center at the end of August when Zoomer was five months old. And then Zoomer was able to go full time to daycare and I was able to switch and be full time at the office. And so that's, you know, well, and then, so I'd be at the office five days a week and then I'd go back on Saturdays to write my dissertation. (laughs) That's quite a pace. Mm. Yeah, I'm tired. (laughs) And so you finished your dissertation. I did. And you became Dr. Myers. And did you stay in that job or did you switch to another one? Yeah. So what was really cool is that I just got to keep like climbing this ladder depending on like where I was at. So when I was ABD, I started my job in the family planning division as a project facilitator. So like as staff. And then after I defended my dissertation, then I was eligible to be moved up to um, a research associate position. And so that moved me, you know, up in, in salary and responsibilities and, and, then there was like the time between defending my dissertation and getting it all formatted, right? And like getting it submitted and then actually graduating and getting my diploma. And then once that happened, I got promoted to research assistant professor. So I got promoted to faculty within the School of Medicine. And that was wonderful. And that happened in 2018. And um, I, I was kind of, as a research assistant professor, my job was actually very implementation science focused and very administrative. Um, so I, I wrote and got really big grants and hired an incredible team and oversaw st- a statewide contraceptive initiative where we would partner with community health clinics and um, work to, to train them and provide no-cost contraceptive care to people in Utah who were uninsured or undocumented. And so that is what the kind of work that I did for four years in the family planning division was contraceptive access work. And occasionally I taught um, gender and sexuality in the sociology department where I'm, in, where I'm adjunct faculty. So you've had a long, long stretch in academia between your time at community college and then at your four-year college, and then your master's and your PhD and being a professor. But it seems like with Raising Them being published by a popular press and not an academic press, and the website and the Instagram, that you have a passion for working with audiences outside academia about gender and understanding how gender influences our daily life and really how we have the power to make choices to change um, a lot of the stereotypes and the influences that are even, in, as you said, in marketing, they're everywhere. We can, we can, outside academia, do a great deal to change the perceived limits of all genders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that I 
have realized that of like, okay, I can, I, I haven't published um, like through peer reviewed journal articles, like anything about gender or gender creative parenting. I have participated as an interviewee for other scholars who study gender creative parenting, um, you know, in quantitative and qualitative research. And it'll be really exciting, you know, because it's really cool to see that like, oh my gosh, there's academic work about this now, right? There's enough people parenting this way that you can hit a pretty great sample size or you can, you know, like actually have some qualitative interviews. And so that's really amazing. And that has just been happening in the last year, but I haven't, um, you know, all of my publications have, have been in the contraception world, but what I had realized, it's like, this was kind of just this, like, this was my parenting practice, right? It's a passion of mine and I'll do a blog. And I did, I realized like, I could, I could write an academic paper about gender creative parenting that's behind a paywall and available to whoever has access, you know, to it, maybe through, through, you know, their academic library, or I can write a blog post, publish it tomorrow, and it can be read by 10,000 people. You know, so I just was like, my reach, my reach is greater as a public sociologist, you know, rather than like in some ivory tower, just like talking, you know, theoretically, I'm like, no, I'm going to, I'm doing this and I'm showing people how I do this. And I'm trying to, um, teach them about gender. And like, I take, I'll take the statistics, you know, that are in these papers behind the paywall and serve them up in digestible like lessons for people who don't have access. So that's, that is totally what I've been able to do and what I really love doing, being able to talk with people, you know, that are, that are, um, just following us, you know, through Instagram or Facebook or whatever, and like, and able to access the resources that I create more easily. So it sounds like you're at a bit of a crossroads now, professionally. I am. I am. I think I saw it coming. And, and the pandemic, I think, kind of pushed it into overdrive of happening. So I got the book deal in the fall of 2018. And it took about a year to write the book. And, you know, in the, you know, I was kind of doing both. It kind of felt like I had two full time jobs. I was writing this book and also doing gender creative parenting advocacy and, you know, had my faculty position and all that work. And when the book was kind of starting to like come out and I just was knowing like, I think this is my purpose. Like this is what I want to be doing. It's not sustainable for me to continue doing both of these full-time careers and I need to choose one. And it just kind of felt like this is what I want to do. I want to keep writing and I want to keep educating and creating resources. And I love working. Um, I help you know, work behind the scenes with, with companies that create media for kids and clothes for kids and content for kids. And I can help, you know, teach them about gender and so that they can make more inclusive, you know, decisions in the kinds of characters that they create or how they're marketing things to families. And so I, I love that. And when the book came out in September of 2020 and with the pandemic and my husband being Australian and Australia handling COVID so much better. There's zero cases in co- uh, zero cases of COVID in Australia right now. And so we just were like, let's go. Like we've always wanted to live in Australia. We can have a different type of life for the next year in Australia than we can in Utah. And 
I had a decision to make, you know, like I can't continue being a full-time, you know, research assistant professor and running this implementation science project um, that is so, you know, located in Utah from Australia. And so I resigned and, and, you know, kind of taking this like leap of faith. I don't, you know, I don't, I want to write more. I want to continue consulting um, about gender creative, you know, perspectives. And I want to create the gender and sexuality class that I got to teach to so many University of Utah students. I want to create something that's more open to anybody to take. So I'm excited. I just have to, you know, like finish the next wild month of packing up our life in Utah and getting ready to move across the world. Wow. And it sounds like from the concluding chapter of Raising Them that there might be a second memoir where we see um, how Zoomer uh, begins to self-identify and interact with the world as Zoomer gets to be uh, older and a bit more independent. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Like I I got into the habit of... um taking notes like all day long as thoughts would come into my head as I was writing, raising them, you know, like I'd get a thought while I was at work and it was like, well, I can't just like sit down and write right now, but I can open up my notes app and, and, you know, type a sentence in to jog my memory for tomorrow when I sit down at 5am to write the book. And that habit stuck, you know, I got in the habit of writing down things that Zoomer would say or interactions that we would have or thoughts. And, and so now there's, still write this really long Google doc of of those notes that continued after raising them. And I actually think that gender creative parenting gets really interesting once after, you know, after the age of three. So raising them goes, you know, from zero to three. And I think it's so focused on like the, the parents, right? Like what are the parents' behaviors and actions to kind of like create this environment for a kid? And then you know, ages three to six is just like pedal to the metal because your kid starts talking, they start identifying, they start asking really critical questions, you know, and it's, I, I totally think that there is another book. And so I want to write kind of the sequel and maybe cover ages three to six. And I, I asked Zoomer, I was like, would you want to like kind of help write this with me? And Zoomer said, that would be too boring for me, mom. <laughs> so, so I think I might be on my own with that, but I, I'm excited to share it. It's gotten really, really interesting and I want to, yeah, there's, there's more to, there's more to talk about. And I hope that we will. I hope that you will check back in with us after you uh, depart academia and set up your new life and see the directions outside of academia where you have your new platforms to continue to work on gender and what gender creative parenting is. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, We've been talking with Dr. Carl Myers about their book, Raising Them, Our Adventure in Gender Creative Parenting. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please. Join us again.